For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. Well, good morning. As Jason said, my name is Tim Frost. I'm one of the pastors at Covenant Prez up in Harrisonburg. And it's always fun to be here with you guys at Holy Cross and stand. I know many of you. And I don't know many of you, and that's always exciting too to see new faces here as well when I come down here. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 10. If you guys have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 10. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table there. Uh, feel free to borrow one during the service, or if you'd like to take that home, feel free to take that as well. That's a gift from Holy Cross to you. Well, I know that uh, you guys are in the middle of a series looking at the Apostles' Creed. And this morning we're going to be looking at the implications behind the phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate. When we say that phrase, that one simple phrase points toward the great theological insights of the purpose and the necessity and the accomplishment of the work that Jesus did on our behalf through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And as we're going to see from this passage in Hebrews particularly, God's beautiful plan of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could not, which is reconcile us to himself. And it was put in, that plan was put in place before the foundation of the world. And in God's good and sovereign design, he orchestrated the events of history and used Pontius Pilate as part of the means of God fulfilling the purpose in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself. Pontius Pilate acted in a sinful way, but God used Pontius Pilate as part of his plan to, to reconcile man to himself. And what a, what a great What a great God it is who's orchestrated all things for the salvation of his people. If you would, would you please stand as we read Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. Let me pray. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the truths here that would lead us to repentance, to trust in Jesus alone, and lead us into a life that then lives in obedience to God the Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago... Actually, decades ago now, when I was a, a, a sophomore in college at JMU, I had started helping out with the youth ministry. 
And one of my first tasks was to help co-lead a a high school guy's Bible study. And we had the students help us teach it. And so the the youth pastor at that time asked me to go meet with one of the freshmen in high school to see what he would want to teach on that week. And so I went to that meeting with the student and and was kind of anticipating asking him what he wanted to study. And I, I figured he'd say something like, Hey, what does the Bible say about dating? You know, or um, do all pets go to heaven? Or something along those lines. So I was prepared to kind of, you know, I did youth ministry for, for over 10 years. And the questions you get are, are fantastic and they're all over the place. You never really know what you're going to get. And so I walked into this meeting kind of prepared thinking, okay, there's going to be some outlier question. So I asked him, I said, all right, what, what do you want to study this week? And what do you want to teach the other guys in the study? And he looked at me and he said, why did Jesus have to die? Okay, all right, that's great. That's a fantastic question. And it took me aback. And I thought, that is, that's a great question because that is the question, isn't it? That gets to the heart of Christianity. It gets to the heart of, of, of why there is problems in this world. Why we experience pain and suffering. Why did Jesus have to die? It gets to the problem of sin. And it gets to the only hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we get to the, the Apostles' Creed and we read the, the, the statement, you know, uh, Jesus, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, you might ask, well, why did Jesus have to suffer under Pontius Pilate? You're asking basically the same question. Why did Jesus have to die? And we're going to look to Hebrews for the answer to that. And one of the things we see immediately that, that should stick out to us as we read this passage in Hebrews and as you actually read the whole, all of the Bible is that there is a problem of sin. Right? So what I want to do briefly, give some context to what, what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's comparing Jesus to the priesthood in the Old Testament. I want to give a flyby of the Old Testament of how God set us up to understand the problem of sin and the need for one to stand in our place and atone for our sins. So I want, I want to, I'm going to do a quick flyby and then we're going to look at this, this passage uh, in particular. But I want to go back to the very beginning. In the garden... God created Adam and Eve, and they lived in perfection. And the design was for mankind to live in the presence of God in perfect communion. And God set up a relationship with Adam and Eve called a covenant. And in that covenant, there was one stipulation. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, you will surely die. Theologians call that, and our Westminster Confession calls it, either calls it the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Meaning this. Had they obeyed, they would have been able to live in, in, uh, uh, in perfect communion with the Lord for eternity, but they disobeyed. They broke that covenant, and we then see the effects of that sin, that disobedience. It, it permeates every aspect of who we are. It permeates every aspect of our world now. The Bible gives us a picture that even all of creation is groaning and waiting for the day of redemption, because the effects of sin are total, meaning there's not one aspect of creation, not one aspect of humanity that is not affected by sin now. Mankind is kicked out of the garden immediately, out of the presence of God, because in our sin, we are no longer able to be in God's presence. We are unholy, we are impure, and we cannot be in the presence of a holy God, otherwise we would die. And so in God's kindness, he kicked mankind out of the garden and created a barrier between man and himself. And so we immediately see The effects of sin is a distancing between God and ourselves. Well, what does God do right after that? God, in an act of kindness, he moves toward Adam and Eve. He kills an animal. 
And he clothes them with the skin of the animal. He moves toward them in grace. When they deserved death, he could have killed them on the spot, but he didn't. He withheld that. We know eventually they would die, but God in his grace moves towards them, covers them. And then he establishes what theologians call the covenant of grace. You see the beginning of God's uh, foreshadowing of the work of Christ, even as early as Genesis 3.15. Where God, as he, as he explains the curse then, that now uh, as you work, there's going to be thorns and thistles. And by the sweat of your brow, you're going to you know, work the field. And, and, and women, there's going to be pain in childbirth. And there's going to be enmity between you and the serpent. And you will surely die. But in that curse, he also says this. But through the seed of the woman, there will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. But it's going to come at a cost because his heel is going to be bruised. So you get that little statement. There's going to come one. The seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. But he will have his heel bruised. That is a foreshadowing that one day that there's going to be one from the seed. Tracing the line all the way down to who the Messiah is going to be. Who's going to right the wrongs that Adam did in the garden. There's going to be one who's going to set it right. Who's going to defeat Satan. But it's going to come at a cost. And it's again a foreshadowing of the work of Christ on the cross. We get a glimpse now as, as God reestablishes his covenant with his people. No longer is it going to be a covenant of works because no longer can mankind fulfill that covenant. Because we are all born with a sinful nature now. There's no way we could be perfectly obedient. So every covenant that God makes with mankind from here forward is under the banner of the covenant of grace. Which is saying, I will do this because you can't. And here are the stipulations of how you live in obedience to what I'm going to do for you. So all the covenants in the Old Testament is called the Old Covenant... We, it's, you, there's a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David. And then there are, there are iterations and, and there are renewals of this covenant throughout the Old Testament. It's a covenant of grace because God moves toward mankind and our sinfulness. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, uh, what would happen when God makes a covenant? It's a promise. It's an agreement between two parties. And this was happening throughout the ancient world, not just in, in those who were in the Bible, but in, in the pagan worlds, covenants were a natural part of agreements between typically wealthy landowners and then those who would work the field. And what would happen is they would do a covenant ceremony where they would take an animal, or many animals often, and they would, they would kill the animal and cut it in half. And then what would happen typically is they would walk through, uh, imagine these are two halves of the animals, they would walk through it as a binding part of the covenant in blood, saying, if one of us does not uphold our end of the bargain, may it be to me like these animals. Basically saying, I am binding myself to this. If I don't uphold my end of the bargain, I deserve to die. When God makes his covenant with Abraham, he does the same thing. He takes an animal and he cuts it in two and parts it. And Adam has a vision. Or not Adam. Abraham has a vision. Do you know who walks through the cut halves of the animal? It's not Abraham. It's only God. In the form of a fiery pot, he passes through as if God is saying this now. I am staking my name to this covenant And may it be to me if this covenant is not upheld. Do you recognize what's going to happen? God is foreshadowing the fact that mankind cannot uphold that covenant. And so there must be one, a perfect human sometime, who is going to pay the penalty of that covenant curse. May it be to me, God says. And what does it cost him? His son. And so we see a foreshadowing of the effects of sin. Again, and God is establishing a covenant of grace, saying... I will keep my promise to the point of it costing me. And so as we hear in the Old Testament, and we look at all of the things in the Old Testament that we might read and think, man, that's really weird. 
Like the Old Testament sacrifices, the Passover, all those things. Again, they're pointing the way forward to the work of Christ because of our sin problem. Jump forward to when God is delivering his people out of Egypt. And he said there's going to be a great death in the land of Egypt. The firstborn son in each household is going to die. Unless you take the blood of a spotless lamb and you wipe it over your doorposts. And then the angel of death will pass over your house. That's why it's called the Passover. Again, Jesus, or God is himself is setting up the fact of what Jesus one day will do, that the blood of a spotless substitutionary sacrifice will be what covers us because there's a problem of sin. There must be an atonement for our sin. And so as God gathers his people and as he delivers them from Egypt and sets up the nation of Israel, God sets up the religious life of the people of Israel to reflect their sin problem and his holiness and then he gives them a system that points towards what it's going to take to make them right with him. So as you look at all of the rituals of cleanliness, all of the sacrifices, all of the special religious days, those were not to say, hey, if you do these perfectly, you will make God happy with you. It's not at all. God set up the religious system to point them toward the fact that they have a sin problem, God is holy, and it must come through somebody else, someone else on their behalf who can make up for the sin that they had against God. So as the Old Testament worship sets up the pattern for the people of God to understand several things. One of them is that their sin had uh, led to separation from God. The way that the tabernacle and then later the temple was set up was very particular. And if you know anything about the Holy of Holies, it was, it was separate from the rest of the temple. And it was walled off to demonstrate, again, a physical reminder that we are not allowed in God's presence because of our sin. And only one day a year would the high priest be able to enter into the Holy of Holies on what's called the Day of Atonement. You may have heard of Yom Kippur in the Jewish holiday. That, that's the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go and make atonement in the Holy of Holies for the people of Israel. And just as a side note, when the priest went in there, he had a rope tied around his ankle. Do you know Why? For if he went in there and had not ritually cleansed himself as a means of saying, I am impure. If he had not gone through all the things that God had prescribed and he walked into the Holy of Holies, he would have been struck dead. And so the rope around his ankle led out under the curtain, out into the main area where then the other priests could retrieve his body. Right? So there's a very real reminder that we have a holy God and we are not holy. I want to read to you. Uh, an excerpt of what would happen on uh, the, the Day of Atonement when, when the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies. Uh, there were two features that distinguished this day of worship. First, it was the one day a year that the high priest and only the high priest entered the most holy place of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle and then the Holy of Holies in the temple, where he presented sacrificial blood as atoning sacrifice for the sins of Israel and the purification of the tent of meeting. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, a rectangular box that represented the resident presence of God. The high priest sprinkled blood on the lid, which was the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, achieving the forgiveness of sin for the priest and for the congregation of Israel. Next, the high priest sprinkled blood on the outer room of the tent of meeting. The blood uh, decontaminated the ceremonial impurities accumulated by the sins and the ceremonial uncleanliness committed for the year. The purification of the tent of meeting was national in scope, giving a comprehensive purging of sins and impurities. So we read that and we think that is so foreign to our experience in life. What does it even mean? 
It's a reminder as they go through those rituals. Again, a reminder of our sin and the barrier between us and God. All of those religions, all our religious uh, practices were to be a continual, uh, oftentimes daily or weekly or yearly reminder that we have rebelled against God and we deserve death. And the atoning sacrifices, the sprinkling of the blood, was to show that there is going to be a way to be made right with God, and it's going to be through the blood sacrifice of the perfect spotless lamb. They knew that their sins needed to be atoned for by a substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, Atonement. We don't really use the word atonement a whole lot in our culture. What does atonement even mean? It means bearing the penalty of sin and meeting the demands of the law. We have actually broken a law. We've actually occurred judgment against uh, God's holy law. And so there needs to be a way to atone, to make up for our sins. We deserve death. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. And the Israelites understood that their sins needed to be atoned for, needed to be made up for. The blood sacrifice was a reminder of the covenant curse that we deserve death. And it served as a substitute for them. Now we know that the the blood of a lamb or a goat or any other sacrifice did not actually atone for their sins. But it was a pointing forward to the one true sacrifice that one day would. And they looked to faith in God's provision. But it's why they did it continually as a reminder that their sins needed to be forgiven. And it looked forward to a better and a complete sacrifice. And it pointed to the fact that they needed to be reconciled to God. The story of Israel is our story as well. We're people who have rebelled from God and we long for a right relationship with him. God made the central part of of the, the Israelites' life, the temple worship, to remind them of this truth. To always be constantly in front of them that we are not right with God, we are sinful and God is holy, and there must be a way to be made right with him that's outside of ourselves, because in and of ourselves we cannot do it. Because we have a sin nature and we are prone to sin. And even if you think you aren't, you are. We all are. We sin daily. The problem of sin is still with us. When I, when I was uh, growing up in high school, one of the, one of the, um, the movies my friends and I would, would often watch as, as we would gather on the weekends was, was uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I don't recommend necessarily going out and seeing it, but it was a, it was a, we were high school guys and we loved it. And it's horrible in terms of the, 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 the acting and the, you know, the, the, the special effects. There were, there were just effects. They were not special. Um, well, there's this one scene where uh, King Arthur, he's on this quest to find the Holy Grail and he's going through the land of Britain and he comes to this, this impasse where he's trying to get across this little bridge and there's this, the, the, the dark knight, the black knight is, is in this armor and he won't let him pass. And, and, and Arthur tells him who he is. I'm king of the Britons. And the dark knight says, none shall pass. And so they, they engage in a sword fight, right? And uh, what happens in, 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 in the way only Monty Python can is uh, a simple little nick to the arm. And the arm falls off of the dark knight. And, then, uh, and the dark knight just says, it's just a scratch. You know? And then, then, then Arthur nicks the other arm. And the whole arm falls off. And it's just a flesh wound, right? And he keeps fighting. And now he's, now he's just trying to kick him because he has no more arms. And eventually the legs come off. And he's just... You know, and, and Arthur's about to pass over the bridge, and the knight there with no arms and no legs on the ground says, get back here, you know, I'll, I'll bite your legs off, you know? Like, and I, I watched that, and as I'm thinking about that now, I think he, he had no self-awareness of how dire the situation was, right? He has no arms and no legs, and he still thinks he's going to be able to defeat King Arthur. Come back here, I'll bite your legs off. But we do that all the time with ourselves, 
where we deceive ourselves that it's not as bad as it really is. We think that our sin problem is just a flesh wound. It's just a scratch. It just affects us a little bit. But scripture gives us a very different portrayal of that. Scripture says that for the wages of sin is death. That we are all dead in our transgressions and our sins. All of us have turned aside. All of us have rebelled against God. Not one of us seeks after God in our natural state. It's worse off than we could ever imagine. We are more sinful than we realize. It's not just a flesh wound. It's actually death. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We are enemies of God and we are cut off from him. To understand the need for Jesus. of Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus suffer under Pontius Pilate? We have to understand the depth of our sin. As you look at the Ten Commandments, God's uh, covenantal boundaries he's given to his people of how to live. They, the, the, the law reflects God's holiness. It reflects our sinfulness and shows us how to live. As, as you look at the Ten Commandments, how are you doing? How, how are you even doing today with that? Let, let me just think through that. Do you, in practice, love anything else more than God? Sports team, comfort, money, sleep. <laughs> in my life, sleep is part of there. Uh, do you take the Lord's name in vain? Or maybe the question should be, how often? Do you always honor your father and mother? Do you steal, lie, or cheat? Do we lust, covet, tear down other people with our words? I I could go on. We fail at these every day. We are a sinful, rebellious people. Our sin problem is far worse than we could ever imagine. So when you look at the law... Does it drive you to despair and think, oh no, oh no? Or do you look at the law and does it drive you to deception and think, I'm doing pretty good with that? The truth is actually very bleak for us all, that apart from God intervening, there's no hope. No hope for you, no hope for me. What do you turn to in order to make yourself feel better about your shortcomings? More importantly, in what or in whom do you trust To make yourself right with God? Do you turn to religion, to just doing things, to being here? Hey, I go to church, or help out in children's church, or I I did nursery, so I'm good. Do you turn to service? You're active in the community, therefore you're doing all right. Just doing good things, being nice enough. The problem is, none of those are are actually going to mean anything. Because we need to look to another who can accomplish what we cannot. And that is atone for our sins. And to make us right with God the Father. Then all of those things are a response to what God has done. Then service is not, I'm earning God's love. It's a response to, God has already loved me. Therefore, I get to do this. Don't reverse the two. So I want to look now at the hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is what Hebrews talks about. Which is why when the author of Hebrews compares the work of the priest to the work of, of Jesus, it's important to understand that Old Testament context of what the priests did. They represented uh, God to man. They represented man to God. They brought the sacrifices forward that represented what Christ ultimately would do. If you look again at Hebrews 10, when it's talking about in verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's a quote from Jeremiah 31 that we read earlier in the service. That God, through his prophet Jeremiah, through the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, is saying, the old administration of the covenant of grace, which is full of rituals and sacrifices, is not good enough to actually atone. It's just pointing forward to what is real. It's a shadow and a type of what is to come. 
And so I will make a new covenant. And that new covenant is going to be sealed in the blood. Not of a lamb. But the spotless lamb who is Jesus Christ. God's own son. The perfect God man who was perfect on our behalf. And was able to stand in our place. God is saying I will make a new covenant with them. And I will put my law on their hearts. And I will write them on their minds. And one of the ways he does that is by giving us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now through the work of Jesus Christ. See, there was a necessity for Jesus to suffer and die under Pontius Pilate. Because of the covenant curse, which is this, that for the wages of sin is death, that we all deserve to die. Jesus had to stand in our place and actually suffer the consequence of the covenant curse on our behalf. Do you understand this? The fact that we can be under the covenant of grace, it was still a covenant of works for Jesus. He still lived perfectly on our behalf. Do you understand that? That Jesus did what we could not. He fulfilled the original covenant with Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus perfectly obeyed God the Father. And so he fulfilled the covenant of works. Therefore, he could stand in our place and say, I will take the punishment of death because he was able to fulfill the covenant of works. Therefore, what Jesus did in the covenant of works, we were able to receive as a covenant of grace. And do you realize that Jesus, his death, actually atoned for something? It actually accomplished something. Jesus did not just give us a good example to follow. Jesus was not just a good moral teacher who has some good things to say that if we just did as he did, we would be okay. No, no, no. When Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice did what the sacrifice of, of, of bulls and goats and lambs could never do. It actually satisfied the demand that God had for death because of the covenant breaking. One commentator who actually I had in seminary, he's one of my professors, he said, the atonement reconciles, rescues, ransoms, redeems, restores, relieves, renews, resurrects, and rejuvenates. Its effect on men is astonishing. He should have said remarkable, but... <laughs> That would, have, that would have just gone with everything else there. But yeah, it is, right? It, it recon, his, his, his sacrifice, his atonement, actually reconciles us to God. It doesn't point forward to something else, the need for anything else. No, Jesus' sacrifice actually makes us right with God because it purges our sin. It rights our wrongs. It cleans our record. It makes us morally pure. It redeems and restores And the beautiful thing about this is that the work of Christ is finished on our behalf. Look again what the author says in verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you hear that? What Jesus did was final. It is complete. There is no need for any other sacrifice, which is actually good news for us. If you are a legalist here, which means you wrestle with guilt and shame and think, I just got to be better and work harder. That is really good news. You do not have to give penance when you sin Because your sins are already cleaned and wiped away in the final completed work of Christ as your substitutionary sacrifice. Be free. 
Be free and obey. It's a one-time sacrifice that secured the salvation for God's people. We see, in, in, if you look at the beginning of chapter 10, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, that's pointing forward to what Christ will do, pointing forward, instead of the true form of these realities, they can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So again, the sacrifices were a reminder and a pointing forward to what would be true in Jesus. And now in Jesus, we no longer need the continual sacrifices because his sacrifice was a once and for all deal that actually satisfied God's wrath and made us right with him. See, Jesus, uh, the great high priest, did what the other priests could not do. Jesus actually represented man to God and God to man perfectly because he was the perfect God-man. His work is final and complete. That's why when the author says he sat down, when you compare it to what it says in verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Do you see the contrast there? It's very, very specific. The Old Testament priest stood offering sacrifices daily. Jesus offered it once and he sat down. The author is making a very specific contrast that the Old Testament priest had to continually offer sacrifices pointing forward to one day when it would be complete. Jesus sacrifices his body as a sacrificial lamb and he sits down because it is done. Finished, complete. And it actually paid our penalty. Big word, propitiation. Jesus was our propitiation. Meaning he turned away, he satisfied God's wrath. That God's wrath against the sin of mankind was paid by the perfect covenant representative, Jesus, when Adam, the first covenant representative, couldn't do it. Jesus satisfied the demands of the law. It fully satisfied the penalty of the broken covenant. And it reconciles us to God. If you look at verse 17 again, and it says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Do you understand that? I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. He is going to treat us as if we are innocent. That is a, a judicial declaration. You are as if you have no sin. The biblical terminology for that is justification. And, and one of the ways uh, that in working with youth ministry, often we would try to teach justification, it's just as if I never sinned. We are treated innocent, declared free of the effects of sin and transgressions. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this about justification. It's an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins and he accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The imputed just means credited to us. We are justified because our sin was credited to Christ, our substitutionary sacrifice and Christ's righteousness was credited or imputed to us. It's called the great exchange, the double transaction, double imputation, that Christ gets our sin and we get his righteousness. What a deal. What a deal. In his substitutionary sacrifice, our sins are on him, and we receive all the benefits of his upholding the perfect covenant. Not only innocent, but we're fully righteous 
because of Christ's righteousness. Do you get that? It's like if you were, had to go to court for a speeding ticket, which I assume that's never happened to anyone here. <laughs> Myself excluded from that. Um, and, uh, and you go and you're standing before the judge. And the judge's son, for some whatever weird reason to make this analogy work, is there in the court. <laughs> and he looks at you and says, you know what, son, you stand in his place. And you know what, Tim, why don't you go stand where my son was and here's the keys to his car. And, and by the way, I just signed you up to uh, be the recipient now of all of my son's inheritance and the 401k that was going to be his. And you get the property and you get the go-kart. You know? I just, I just went in for a speeding ticket. I was guilty. I, I deserved to be punished. And I walk away with so much more. Not just being declared innocent, but gaining something so much more. And that's a horrible illustration to describe the beauty of what it means to get not only our sins paid for, but then the righteousness of Christ added to us that says, you are going to be treated as a son and an heir of God the Father. You are now a part of his kingdom, and all the riches of the kingdom are yours. You who once were guilty and far off and alienated now get to be part of God's family. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ on our behalf securing that for us. And not only did Christ justify us in that atoning work, but we look, he, he declares us holy and sanctified. Look back at verse 14. It says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is a, a moral category. It's a category of, of holiness. Whereas justification is a legal declaration of being innocent, sanctification deals with our moral impurities. Whereas because of our sin, we are no longer allowed in God's presence because of our sin. Christ not only has made us right before God legally, but he has given us all of his righteousness and all of his purity that we are now seen as if we have no sin and are allowed in God's presence. When Jesus Christ died, do you know what happened to the curtain, the temple that separated God from man in the Holy of Holies? It was ripped in two from top to bottom. A demonstration that no longer is there separation between God and man because the atoning sacrifice has happened. The sins have actually been atoned for. Therefore, a sinful person can now be in the presence of God because they are no longer considered and treated as sinners because they have the righteousness of Christ and their sins have been paid for. That's incredible. And I still don't fully understand it. And yet, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that's true for you. That you now can be in God's presence, not because of what you have done or what you continue to try to do, but because of what already has been done once and for all. And then we get to live our lives in obedience as a response to that, not to earn God's love. Knowing what the depth of your sin is and knowing what Christ did on your behalf, does it make a difference in your life? Does it actually matter knowing this, the great exchange is true? That your sins have been poured out on Christ and his righteousness has become yours? Christ suffering under Pontius Pilate to reconcile rebellious, broken people to God in heaven. Does that matter? Does it really matter to you? I hope so. I hope that as Christians we live a life that reflects a deep understanding. A deep understanding of the lengths that God has gone to in order to rescue us from our sin. 
You see, you no longer have to live in guilt thinking that you can work your way to God's acceptance. Do you get that? If you're a person who wrestles with guilt, you don't have to earn God's love. You don't have to wrestle if God is angry with you or not because you are already accepted because of what Christ has done. Otherwise, you would have to continually offer sacrifices for your sins each day. But we know that that's not the case anymore because Jesus did it once and for all. You no longer have to live in shame. The spotless lamb was sacrificed to cover the shame of his own people. Do you get that? All of the shame that you wrestle with, whether it's based on past behavior or things you're struggling with or things you don't like about yourself or things that have been done to you or whatever, all of that shame has been poured out on the spotless lamb who was sacrificed and now gives you dignity and wholeness in Christ. You no longer have to prove your worthiness because your worthiness is already demonstrated on the cross that for God so loved the world that he would die for you. That he would send his only son to atone for your sins, the sins of his people, and make you right with him. You no longer have to operate based on shame. Christ took our guilt and he bore our shame so that we might be the righteousness of God. If you believe this, be free and live in the joy of the truth, right? Ephesians 2 talks about, for it's by grace you've been saved, and it's not of yourselves, and it's not by works. It's a gift that no one should boast. And right after Paul talks about that, he says this, you are Christ's workmanship, created for good works before the foundation of the world, that you might walk in them. And so all of our obedience, all of our good works, all of our service comes as a response then to the truth that Jesus was sacrificed on your behalf and you now are right with God. You are now free to live in obedience. That is not a feather in your cap to earn God's love, but it's a way to show your response to what God has already done. And if you don't believe this, would you consider these truths and seek to answer the question of how you might be made right with God? The problem is sin is real. The solution is not trying harder or being a better person or being nicer or voting the right way or doing all the right dietary restrictions or you name whatever else you want to add to that. This response is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, through his work that he did on our behalf to make us right with God. Apart from Jesus, there's no hope. In Jesus Christ is our eternal hope. Let's pray. God, I do pray that as, as we confess these things of, of the, the faith that we've confessed with brothers and sisters throughout the ages, that we trust in you, that we believe in God the Father, that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and he rose on the third day. As we confess those things, I pray that those are not just mere words or mere statements or ideas, but that those are deep-seated truths that affect how we think and how we act, how we live, and it impacts where our hope resides, which is in the completed work of Christ. We pray these things to your glory. Amen.